All right, the book of John, the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. So good to have Rachel with us today. That is a living answer to prayer that we have before us and really of the mercy and grace of our Lord. I pray that He continues to do that, Rachel, with your help. That would be a true gift of which all of us would be indebted to live for Him after something like that. John chapter 1. We want to begin our Christmas series here today for the next couple of Lord's Days. I hope to finish this up on Christmas Day. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the eternal Son prior to the creation. Then, Lord willing, next week we'll look at the eternal Son creating. And then on Christmas Day, we will look at the eternal Son incarnate. So that's kind of the steps or the outline that we have here before us. I want to read the first five verses of John chapter 1, although this morning we'll only be looking at the first two. These words are simple and yet full of depth and meaning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it or overpower it. When we look at the book of John, many books whose themes and purposes of writing can be more hidden within the text, but John himself tells us the purpose of what he is writing. If you go to the end of this book, in John chapter 20, He says at the end of that chapter that his aim and purpose, verse 30, is that there are many other signs that Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that believing you may have life in His name. He will go on and repeat that theme at the end of chapter 21 when he says in verse 24, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which... If they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. That is an amazing statement, isn't it? Here's John testifying to us that his signs to his deity, to his sonship of being God in human flesh, 
are so manifold and so undeniable that if we would write all those deeds in detail, we would have volume beyond volume beyond volume beyond volume of all the things he did in those short approximate three years in which he exercised his ministry. The purpose of this book is to give to us selective signs that he gave testifying to who he is. That is the Son of God. If you know systematic theology, you could call this book the theology proper of the Gospels. And really the first 18 verses of this book really give to us the introduction and the declaration of who he is that is later on laid out in illustration after illustration and teaching after teaching of what he has said. We're going to move from Jesus being the Word, in the beginning was the Word, or if we're going to use the Greek term, logos. In the beginning was the logos to that logos or word being the life, to being the light, to being the word made flesh, to being the only begotten Son, to Christ our Messiah, to His Lordship, to His human name, which is what? Jesus to John's declaration in John chapter 1 and verse 34, when John says, I myself have seen and have testified, this is the Son of God. That's exactly where this whole thing moves. And when you think about all of that description, because brethren, we don't even know His name until later on in the chapter. If all you had was this book, and you had not previously read anything in the New Testament, you would not know his name until verses 29 and after, even though it's hinted at in verse 17 when it says grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. But it is John himself who testifies when Jesus goes down into the water and he baptizes him that this is the Son of God. This is an amazing, amazing story. Not only is it amazing in that aspect, but it is amazing that if you or I were going to begin a gospel presentation, would you begin it this way? In the beginning was the Word. I don't think you and I would begin it that way, would you? I don't think you and I, if we would say to ourselves, you know what, I need to convince somebody that Jesus is the Son of God, so I'm going to start out this way. Let me teach you something. In the beginning was the Word. I don't think that we would begin that way, nor do the other books of the Gospel begin in similar fashion. Deity entered into this world. We could put these first two verses of this book under this question. What or who continually was prior to all things? 
who or what was continually was before creation, before all things? That is a valid question, isn't there? Science today would say that that which is eternal is the eternal cosmos, the building blocks of the universe, that that is what was eternal, and that eternal mass and that eternal substance was there, and there was a big bang, and out of all that comes all that we have. But the scripture calls that folly. It calls it a misunderstanding, a darkened viewpoint. A person, a being, created all things. And that person existed prior to those things. And it is the Word. Or the Logos. So if we could read it this way in John chapter 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God. And the Logos was who? Was God. Now brethren, there are attempts today to try to minimize at least the truth of what we're going to look at today. That the Son of God is the eternal Son. He is the eternal Word, the eternal Logos, who is the eternal Son, who is the Messiah. And throughout church history, there have been various historical views, various wrong views of who Jesus Christ is. Some of those views are still percolating to different degrees even today. Immediately after Christ was resurrected and shortly after the formation of the church, there came a group that flowed out of Judaizing Christianity. And of course, we know who the Judaizers were. They wanted to say Christ plus plus the law. This group believed that Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, so fulfilled the Mosaic law that God chose him to be his Messiah. Do you hear what that says? Did Jesus Christ fulfill the Mosaic law? The answer to that, of course, is what? Yes. yes. Was he the son of Mary and Joseph as far as human beings? Well, he was the son of Mary. But they believed that because he fulfilled the Mosaic law, that God ended up choosing him to be his Messiah. And that consciousness of him being the Savior, or him being the Messiah, came upon him at his baptism. That is a wrong view. Because in essence, folks, this view denied the virgin birth, and it denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Because therefore he's just a man, and as a man he fulfills the Mosaic law, and because he is that righteous, God chooses him to be the Messiah. That is a wrong view. Shortly percolating around that time was what is called the Gnostic view. 
the Gnostics of which the New Testament addresses some of their eras. And one of those books that does that is the book of 1 John. The Gnostics believed in a type of dualism concerning the man, Jesus Christ. The Gnostics believed that flesh in the material world was evil. Spirit in the spiritual world was good, but the flesh in the world, the material world, was evil. So therefore, under no circumstances ever could God become flesh. Because if the flesh is evil and the world, the material world is evil, if God took on flesh, that would make him, it would make him evil. Two viewpoints percolated within that movement. One was, is that the divine Christ came upon the human Jesus at his baptism, but departed before he died. And of course, without light and understanding, you could see how that view would come into being. If you consider the material world evil, and therefore God cannot be evil, you certainly could come up with some kind of theory that the divine Christ came upon the human Jesus at his baptism, but he couldn't die, right? So it had to depart prior to that. Another view that came up is that Jesus only had the appearance of flesh. Some people call this the phantom view. In other words, he appeared as if he was in human flesh, but he really what? He really wasn't. And of course, this is an incorrect view also, and the New Testament addresses those. And you remember in John, in 1 John, he talks about those who went out from us who were not of us. Whoever denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, right? So you, you have that hint there within that book. Perhaps of all the viewpoints that were heretical in the days of the early church, this one is more the most predominant today, and that is called the Arian view. Early in the 4th century, there was a man out of Alexandria whose name was Arius, and he held this position. That though Christ may be called God, he was not true God, and no way equal with God, either in essence or eternity. So therefore Christ was created... And in the Incarnation, the Logos, or the Word, entered into this human body and took the place of His human spirit. And the end result of that, among other things, is that it meant that the Messiah was neither fully God, nor was He fully man. And in 325, the church soundly rejected this view as heresy and declared, and I quote, Jesus Christ was begotten, not made, and was of one substance with the Father. Now this view is circulating 
even today. The label Unitarian. Unitarians hold to a form of this Arianism. Mormonism holds to a form of this Arianism today. Years ago, some over 20 years ago, John MacArthur was accused of holding Arian views because he once held that Christ's sonship, and I'm quoting him, was a role he assumed at his incarnation. So if his sonship was a role that he assumed at his incarnation, that means before his incarnation he was not the he was not the son. To his credit, in 2001, and by the way, those views, if you have a very, very early copy of his commentary on Hebrews, that's where this came out in, but in 2001, Dr. MacArthur, to his credit, <clears throat> reversed his position. And he issued a statement in which he said, that he now understands, quote, that the Scripture does indeed present the relationship between God the Father and Christ the Son as an eternal Father-Son relationship. And I remember that when he did do that, I thought to myself, that, that is a work of God. <laughs> For a man of that type of preeminency to humble himself and say that he was wrong and issue a correct orthodox position. So I just I tell you that not to try to smear anybody, but just to let you know that forms of Arianism still are percolating around today, even within our modern culture. In 325, it was soundly rejected as heresy. Shortly thereafter, another heretical view came up, and that concerned the relationship of the two natures of Christ. That stated that the two natures could be so separate. Did he have a nature of deity? Did he have a nature of a man? but they are so separate that in essence what you have is two persons. Or that the divine nature would overwhelm the human nature. The early church in 381 condemned this as heresy. So you can understand that during the 300s, what issue was the early church dealing with? Who is Jesus Christ? Later on, another heretical view showed up and said that there was no real union of two natures in Christ, but there was a twofold personality. And that twofold personality was similar to a believer. As a believer, do you have a human spirit? The answer to that is yes. 
But we also have indwelling in us whose spirit? The Spirit of God. And so they held that this is similar to Jesus Christ, that the Logos dwelt in the man Jesus in similar fashion as to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And folks, that brings into question whether or not He's full deity. Because we're not full what? We're not full deity. And in 431, the church condemned that also. Then there was another view that there were not two natures, but there was only one. Now follow this one. Quote, All of Christ was divine, even His body. Unquote. So in Jesus, the divine nature and the human nature became what? One nature. And folks, if you do that, then what you're saying is you have a nature of God and a nature of man, and now you have a third nature in the man Jesus Christ. This also was condemned in 451. And even though it's not exact, there was a form of this years ago, still percolates every now and then, when it speaks of the blood of Jesus Christ as divine and not human. Was the blood of Jesus Christ human? It was human. But they spoke of it as having divine properties such that if the blood of Christ touched you, then you would be reborn. That the divine blood of Christ had power. And that's not meaning what the song means. There's power, there's power in the blood. It's not referring to that. But you could easily make a step, could you not? The church in 451 condemned that position. Later on, this view morphed into that Jesus had two intelligences and two wills also. What is the orthodox view? Well, we're thankful for those who have gone before us because we kind of accept the orthodox view without any thought or understanding today, but the orthodox view was formed in 451, and here's the position. It's a little lengthy, but I'm going to read it. It said that there is only one Christ Jesus, but He has two natures, the human and the divine. He is truly God, you believe that? And truly man, composed of body and rational soul. He is of the same essence with the Father in His deity and the same essence with man in His humanity. Except for what? Except for sin. In His deity, He was begotten of the Father before time. In other words, in His deity, He is eternal. And in his humanity, born of the Virgin Mary. 
the distinction between the two natures is not diminished in their union. So are they union in Christ? The answer to that is yes, but they are still separate and distinguishable. That's mystery involved in that. The distinction between the two natures is not diminished by their union, but the specific character of each nature is preserved and they are united in one person. Jesus is not split nor divided into two persons. He is one person, the Son of God. And folks, some measure of understanding of Him being fully man, you don't have to know all the details, and fully God have to be there in order for you and I to believe He is the Son of God. You get this wrong, and your eternal destiny is at stake. Now again, not the details of it, you don't come to Christ, somebody's not quoting you at a certain creed and saying, do you believe this in detail? But the fact that He's fully man and fully God in one person, Jesus Christ, you and I must believe that. And that's why John begins this way. In order for us to come to a belief that the man Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we have to understand those two facts. Fully man, fully who? Fully God. In one person, the Son of God. Now folks, that brings us to our passage, verses 1 and 2 in the book of John. It says, In the beginning was the Word. <clears throat> the Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Folks, when John says, in the beginning, immediately our minds go back to what? Genesis. It goes back to creation. Genesis 1.1 begins how? In the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. So let's just pause and sit back here just for a minute and try to get our minds around this. Prior to the creation of all things, what existed? The Word existed. The Logos existed. And when we look at Genesis, and we see in Genesis God, and we see in Genesis the Spirit of God, where do we see the Word or the Son of God? We see it when it says, and God said. Everybody, everybody see that? It's the Word. In the beginning was the Word. In other words, the Word exists when creation began because creation is that which has been created. And it says that explicitly in verse 3. 
all things came into being through him, and apart from him, that is the word, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, everything came into being through the word. And apart from the word, nothing came into being that has ever come into being. And that's why I say to you, God has always done all things by his word. He saves us by his what? By his word. Faith comes to us by hearing and hearing by the word. Everything comes to us through word. In the beginning was the word. The word existed prior to the creation. Now folks, what what does it mean when it says word or logos? If I was to say to you, what, how would you define word? I think to be very simplistic, <clears throat> we could define it this way. Word is descriptive of communication. I'm going to pause there and let you think about that just for a second. And a corollary to that is its revelation, right? If the word comes to us, it comes to us how? By revelation. But the word, if you talk about word, you're talking about communication. In the beginning, communication. What is going on in God? God is communicating in Himself. It's kind of a foolish way to look at it, but do you ever think inside yourself? Okay, It's not exact, but there's similarities. God is communicating. The members of the Godhead, I'm jumping out of the text here, the members of the Godhead are in communication. That communication, the Word... In the beginning was the Word. Now why do I emphasize the word was? Because that Greek term is very, very important. The Greek term that is translated was in verse 1 and verse 2 is a word that in the Greek is imperfect tense. Now, I don't want to be super technical, but this, is, this, this helps us. That means that the word was is not something that only occurred in the past. We would typically use an aorist tense for that. Nor is it merely something that is present or something future. The imperfect suggests timelessness. It doesn't mean there was a beginning and it was, nor does it mean that there's a beginning and it is. 
nor does it mean that it's something that's going to occur in the future. So we could say something like this to help us understand. In the beginning was the Word a continuous reality. And the Word was with God a continuous reality. And the Word was God a continuous reality. Now folks, that's kind of awkward for me to say it that way. What word would we use? Eternal. Right? If I'm talking about a continuous reality that is not something that occurred in the past at a point in time, and it's not occurring in the present at a point in time, nor in the future at a point in time. It's continuous reality. We use the word eternal for that. The word is eternal. In the beginning was the eternal what? Word. Or logos. And of course, there's many passages that refer to this. If you we won't turn to it, but Revelation chapter 3 speaks to the church at Laodicea. And he says, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness of God, the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, Christ Himself was prior to the creation. Or Paul would write to the, to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Listen to what it says. By Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things. And by Him all things consist. So if you want to know what is the holding block of all the material world, it is the Word that is holding all this together and is by that same word all things will be dissolved and all things reconstituted. Everybody see that? Everybody with me? In the beginning was the word that continuous reality, the eternal word. But it also says that in the beginning was the word And the Word was with who? Oh, so you, you read that, and what do, you, what do you come away with? Well, is the Word distinctive? Yes. In other words, in the beginning was the Word, that continuous reality, and the Word was... With God, continuous reality. The word with here is a very interesting term. It means in the presence of. 
So in the beginning was the Word. The eternal Word. That continuous reality. And that continuous reality called the Word was also... I wouldn't translate it this way, but is in the presence of who? It's in the presence of God. And folks, the word here that's translated with doesn't suggest, now follow this, and we're going to look at a passage where I prove this, where John proves this. It doesn't suggest merely that the eternal word is near God. Like one day we will be in the presence of who? We'll be literally in the presence of God. We'll be near Him. But it refers to what theologians call a processional nearness or a united nearness. There is a perpetual approach of nearness. So if you're you're going to word it this way, in the beginning was, I'm going to use my hand, was the Word... But the Word also was with who? With God. And the nearness was such that there is cooperation of activity facing God, approaching God, acting with God. Now would you consider that deep? Yes. There's a depthness to this. This is how John's starting off the gospel. And folks, if you turn over to John chapter 5, Jesus Christ Himself says this. In John chapter 5, He heals this man on the Sabbath. And the Jews got hot because Jesus had told this man to pick up his pallet which they considered work. And so verse 16, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on what day? On the Sabbath. Verse 17. But He answered them, My Father is working until now, and I myself am what? Do you hear what He's saying? My Father is working at the exact same moment I am what? I am working. He goes on, verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill Him because they understood He not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God His own Father, making Himself what? Equal with God. It's an amazing statement of people today who say Jesus never said that He was God in human flesh. He just did. And the Jews understood this. Now listen to Jesus' answer, verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing 
and their Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. In other words, folks, is there communication between God, the Eternal Father, and the Eternal Son? There is. That communication is called Word. So, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. This Word, eternal, is also the eternal Word distinct from God. And that gives to us a hint that there's a Godhead. Because how many gods are there? There's only one God. He's describing the person of God, the being of God better. So as we look at John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. Everybody with there? There's the eternal Word. And the Word was with God. Is the eternal Word distinct from God the Father? Yes. Now here it comes. And the Word was who? Not two gods. Same essence. Consubstantial. One substance. The eternal Word, though it is eternal and distinct from God the Father, that eternal Word is deity. It is deity. So folks, what we have is the eternal Word who is the eternal Son who is deity Himself. We call that a person. Right? So we would say that in God, there's how many persons? God the Father, God the Son, God the, the Holy Spirit. They're one essence, one substance, one God. He's describing... Folks, if you could describe God, this is how you would have to describe Him in this way. As a Godhead. Three persons, one being. Now folks, does John show us this in the person of Christ later in this book? He does. So go to one of your favorite chapters in the book of John. And that's got you guessing on what I think is your favorite chapter. But go to John chapter 10. Now you know this. When He is the Good Shepherd... He is the one who's going to lay down his life for the sheep. And toward the end of that chapter, verse 27, he's speaking to those same Jews who keep asking him, Are you the Christ? Tell us plainly. Verse 24. And he says, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never what? They'll never perish. 
and no one will snatch them out of whose hand? Who's the my? It's Jesus, the Christ, right? No one or nothing better, nothing can snatch them out of my hand. Why? Verse 29. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one, nothing, has the ability to snatch them out of whose hand? Now look at verse 30. I and my Father are one. Do you see that? Folks, Christ is telling those Jews that God the Father and the eternal Word, God the Son, are not two gods. They're what? One. What's true of God the Father is completely and infinitely true of God the Son. And folks, the Jews understood what He was saying. If you look at verse 31, the Jews picked up stones again to what? To stone Him. And they understood what He was saying. Look at verse 33 of John 10. The Jews answered Him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a a man, make yourself out to be who? Folks, did those Jews understand the message He was saying concerning Himself? They did. So when a Jehovah's Witness tells you that Jesus Christ is not God, one of the things I tell them is this, if I speak to them and they allow me to speak to them, I tell them five times in the book of John, the Jews in Jesus' day understood that He was saying He's God. Now how are you going to answer that? I've never had a Jehovah's Witness be able to answer that. And I show it to them. What do you say? The Jews understood this. The Jews understood this. They understood it in that day. Why don't you understand it? (laughs) Folks, when he says, I and my Father are one, he's saying we are of the same substance, we are of the same essence, we are consubstantial. So the eternal Word, a continuous reality, right? The eternal Word, was He with God the Father, now that we know that understanding? Yes. How near was Him, was He? One essence. (laughs) Would you call that near? And that eternal Word was deity. Was God. Now now folks, that will transform your Christmas season. (laughs) This is not a celebration of a good man. That's how the world sees it. 
This is not a celebration of someone that restores some form of morality to us. This is God. The one who always has been, is, and will be. The eternal God. The creator of all things. Taking on a human body in the Virgin Mary. If you can't think that and think this, awesome, amazing, incomprehensible. If you can't have in your heart the glory of this. And folks, this is why John says in verse, 15, in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father full of grace and truth. Everybody see that? Folks, those disciples saw the glory. This is what Paul referred to when he saw the glory of Christ struck him down on the road to Damascus. He recognized that light was deity. Who are you? Jesus. And at that point, everything was shattered in Saul's life because he understood the glory of the light, the knowledge of the light of the glory of God in the face of who? Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man. And folks, I want to conclude this way. This eternal Word was in the beginning with God. Always was, always is, always will be. I said to you that a word is a communication. Did I not? But folks, I don't mean by that word this. That Jesus Christ came to communicate or to speak of the divine wisdom of God or even to speak of the person of God. I I don't mean that when I say communicate. Did He do that? He did do that. But that's not what I mean when I say in the beginning was the communication, the Word, the Logos. What do I mean by that? Folks, He didn't come merely to speak to us about God. The man, Christ Jesus Himself is the communication. Is there a difference? There's a world of difference. When He spoke, it was always revelation. When He spoke, it was always inspiration. God breathed. When He walked from here to there, it's exactly what God would do if He was on earth. When He moved His arm, 
turned his eye, communicated in a certain way. When he had certain emotions, like at Lazarus' tomb when he wept, this was communication. All about who? He's not merely communicating. He is the communication itself. And this is what it means when it says, and the Word became flesh. The communication became flesh and dwelt among us. So that John would say, verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten, the only manifested God, that's what the word begotten means, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. Now it says here in our translation, He has explained Him. That's not really fullness in its understanding. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the Father, He is the exegesis of God. He is the absolute echo, if you want to word it that way, of all that God is. He is the perfect reflection of who God is. Hebrews would say, He is the engraving. So folks, when you see Him in your Bible, you're not merely looking at all He said, although He said a lot of great things. You're looking at Him. Everything about Him. His words, His thoughts, His actions, His deeds, His emotions. And when we do that, who are we seeing? God. Philip, have you been so long with me? And you've not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. And folks, in seeing that, we come to know what would a perfect man look like? It would look like someone who is so filled with God that in the things we say, the things we think, and our deeds that we do, and who we are in our being, and all of our emotions would reflect the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Try that at your family get-together. It will change the whole nature of your Christmas. Let's pray.